This is Dr. Baba Kazizadeh. You are listening to the Smile Podcast, where I will be sharing with you my unique and holistic perspective on beauty, health, and wellness. Hello. <laughs> Millions of people have surgery every year. Or you could just get a boob job. Using targeted Botox can be a miracle. Smiling like that is a skill. Your surgery has been successful. Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to the Smile Podcast. Um, I'm Dr. Babak Azizadeh, and I'm really happy to have you. And today we have our resident internal medicine doctor who uh, is uh, here with us, Dr. Andrew Schroeder. So glad to have you back, Drew. Thank you. And Dr. Schroeder is an internal medicine uh, pulmonologist, critical care, has you know, an extensive uh, uh, background in just taking care of people and really keeping people healthy and well and Thank taking you. care of them. And um, Dr. Schroeder uh, has been a colleague of mine for almost 16 years. Yeah. And we're very, very fortunate to have him uh, here today. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I, right. I enjoyed the last time I was here. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, uh, Drew, you uh, you know are in the heart of Beverly Hills as one of the premier uh, primary care physicians. Uh, not not just like you, you take care of people in a high level, and that's one of the things that you know. I think you and I. Or always talk about how you want to work with amazing people, amazing doctors that um, will take care of people the same way you do. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just want to share with you. I'm really fortunate to have you as uh, as a downstairs uh, colleague. But you know, even if you were you know at the building next door, I would be working with you. Wow, thank you. That's so <laughs> nice. Thank you. No, <laughs> no uh, but all jokes aside, Drew is just like a really, really just an amazing physician. Uh, takes care of people at, 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 at a superior, superior way, spends time with them. And uh, we uh, today wanted to get his perspective on something that probably isn't talked about enough. Um, uh, which uh, we're going to call pre-op 101. Many people, uh, millions of people have surgery every year. And uh, one of the things that we rarely talk about is how do you prepare for that? Right. And how do you make sure that you're healthy enough to undergo elective surgery? I mean, sometimes you need something emergently and you got to, you're going to no have it. There's, there's no, no pre-op. Yeah, there's no pre-op, but... For individuals who are having elective surgery, whether it's a you know medically necessary surgery or cosmetic surgery or you know um, otherwise, we wanted to today really discuss with Dr. Schroeder about what he you know does, and hopefully for you guys, our audience, to get real information. If you were to have um, surgery, make sure that the right things are being done for surgery. Surgery is a big deal, right, Drew? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, even if a patient looks up the procedure ahead of time and does a search on it, um, I love it when they talk about minor surgeries. Yeah. And the first thing I talk about with the patient when they're in my office is, this isn't a minor surgery because it's on you. 
Like any surgery is a major surgery because it's on you and that's the patient sitting in front of me. So my job is to protect that patient, make sure it's going, going to be as safe as possible. And there's really three phases. There's four phases actually. The first phase is before they meet me or you. It's their, it's their health. And the best way to do well through surgery is to be healthy and to be physically fit. Those are the people who do the best. Um, then find a very good surgeon such as yourself. And, <laughs> and, and you embarrass me by telling me how, how you know, talking about my skills, but I, I must say, um, Bobak, you are by far, without a doubt, one of the best, and I don't even know what the title is, facial, plastic, otolaryngeal. They changed the name of that specialty from ENT to otolaryngology because it's easier <laughs> to say. But I, I don't even know how many titles you have, but you are a meticulous, fantastic surgeon. You change Thank people's you. lives. Thank so, you. So I don't know if it gets communicated enough in your podcast, but people come from all over the world for you to reconnect facial nerves. Um, people come in sad and depressed and when i see them leave after you've operated on them they're smiling thank you it's unbelievable thank you and as a matter of fact i had a family member have a procedure at a surgery center that, you, that you're at and the nurses couldn't stop talking about how wonderful you are oh so i'm sure your ears are ringing but thank you. um yeah I, I mean just working with you has always been a pleasure thank you um so finding a wonderful surgeon not every surgeon can be as wonderful as you but um, you know, finding a competent surgeon, and then the you know, then there's the surgery, the day of surgery, the anesthesia. I think that's what most patients are worried about. They're worried about anesthesia complications and pain afterwards. Um, and lastly, the most important yet overlooked part is the aftercare, because that's where the risks are. The main risks of surgery today, if things are done properly is blood clots and infections, post-operative infections. Those are the risks. Yeah. Because if you do a really good pre-op ahead of time, then you know the anesthesia risks are mitigated. The surgical risks are mitigated. So um, how, how do you want to structure talking about a pre-op? Like, what do you, okay, so I have a patient who's gonna be having surgery. They're in their 30s, 40s, 50s. They're coming down, they're gonna come and see you to get pre-op clearance right. that's what we call it what do you at that point what do you want those patients what tests first right. of all okay. would you do and then what discussions do you have with right. them so those are so, i think really yeah more key. often than not if someone has not had surgery they actually don't know what a preoperative evaluation is um there are many guidelines there are you know and i'm going to tell you about what i do personally huh in our medical community, which would be the standard of care where you and I practice in Beverly Hills, California. You can go to national meetings and, and I do this and we're, you know, there's 500 of us sitting in a lecture hall and they go over general preoperative evaluations and what we should be doing. And I'll be honest with you, we're all kind of looking at each other <laughs> saying like, how is this possible? Like no one would, no, no surgical nurse would let the surgery happen with this little information. So, so I just want to put a disclaimer out there. I am not adhering to national guidelines. Because national guidelines, guys, for, for the consumer, for the individual who are listening, and correct me if I'm right. wrong, are population-based that also take into account the amount of cost and burden on the healthcare system. Absolutely. 
And so it doesn't mean that it's actually the best healthcare. So let's go. Yeah, but, let yeah let's go with that. Yeah. Because my job is to make sure the patient's going to be safe. And I didn't. I went to medical school, not insurance medical school. So more often than not, insurance does not pay for preoperative examinations. Yeah, they all, just don't. All the time. Yeah. And you know that's a societal issue. That's not something that I think I can change. But I need, you know, like I keep saying, my responsibility is to the patient and to you. Part of what I'm doing is protecting you from getting into a situation where unexpected things happen. So, you know, I've done procedures in my specialty. Um, we, we know what we want to do when we're doing a procedure, but it doesn't always go that way. But as long as we can keep things, you know, we can deal with a slight issue here. The anatomy is different than what I expected. There's bleeding. If we're competent, we can handle these things. Yes. But like, if the boat goes so far out of the lane for unexpected reasons, yeah. that's when bad things happen. Exactly. So, um, I'll talk about a couple of anecdotes where where things like that did happen. Um, but for so a patient walks in, hi, you know, hi, I'm Dr. Schroeder. You're here for your preoperative evaluation. This is what we're going to do today because they don't know what we're going to do. And I say, we're going to talk a lot about your medical history. I'm going to listen to your heart's and heart and lungs. I know you're having knee surgery. I'm not going to be examining your knee because we already figured out that you need surgery. <laughs> then depending on your age, we're going to check blood and I'll go more into specifics later, urine and possibly an electrocardiogram and possibly a chest X-ray. And that's what I can do in my office. If there's any hint that they need further evaluation before I would say, please go ahead and operate on them then we might refer usually to a cardiologist to do more of what we call a cardiac clearance. But I think in today's discussion, we're talking about yeah. a generally healthy person. Yeah. So um, these are self-imposed guidelines. Um, and the patients who we're caring for are either going to be patients at a major medical center in the area or at a surgery center. Yes. There are, you know, we can talk about the differences and I think that's a good topic in itself. Um, but um, they have guidelines too. So surgery centers have guidelines, medical centers have guidelines, I have guidelines, other people have guidelines, but the patient doesn't yeah. know any of this. Um, the age cutoff, Absolutely. right? It's, it's crazy no, no, actually. It's, yeah, and it, by the way, it's difficult on us as right. doctors because we have to not because only take care of you, right. but know what every place is gonna need. Right. So like I had a guy getting a cataract surgery at a surgery center and they wanted an EKG. Under local anesthesia, I'm assuming. It's a drop anesthesia. The ophthalmologist probably was in India on a medical mission and did 300 of these operations in one day without any surgical clearance yeah. and they're asking me for an EKG. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. That's like silly and that's kind of an outlier. But, you know, no matter what age, we're checking blood and urine. The, the blood test we check our liver and kidneys because we're giving them anesthesia and we would like to give them the right dose and make sure they're going to metabolize the medicine properly. Perfect. I like that. So you're going to give reasons. Right. We, and this is exactly what I say yeah. to the patient. We make sure you're not pregnant. I trust you, but the nurse at the surgery center doesn't trust you. So this is your ticket into the, into the center. We check full blood count, red cells to make sure you're not anemic white cells to make sure you don't have a sneaky infection you can't feel, and platelets, which are the bricks in a blood clot. We check bleeding times because that's the cement in a blood clot. 
I check thyroid hormone. That's your energy hormone, but it's also your healing hormone. So if they have low thyroid hormone, I offer them a supplement and they heal better. I also, out of respect to the staff taking care of the patient, check for HIV, Hep B, and Hep C. And that's not because I think the patient has it, but I would like to have that on the record in case there's a needle stick injury because that saves a lot of heartache with the surgical staff. Yeah. And lastly, we check urinalysis looking for infection because like I said, the real risks are infection. Um, there are some people who have other underlying medical issues that I may, I had a lady the other day who had adrenal issues. Your adrenal glands make cortisol. If they don't make enough cortisol and your body's under stress, you can drop your blood pressure and not heal well, have surgical complications. So I check cortisol, make sure it's okay. Turns out it was a little low. We're gonna give her a stress dose of, of, of steroids right around Perfect. the operation, yeah. boom. It, that's music to your ears, that right? Because yeah. everything's handled. Because these are, again, most of, I'm, I'm gonna just turn it to the surgeon. Yeah. Most of the surgical risks at the time of the surgery are when we go in or someone goes in unprepared. Right. If you're not prepared, you get into trouble. Right. If you're prepared, not that surgery has risks and anything can happen. Right. But when you're prepared, like what you just, someone who has an adrenal issue, someone who maybe needs DDAVP right. because of some, you know, uh, bleeding factor. Right. These are the little things that create problems for patients and, you know, impacts their health. So. Right. Um, based on age, uh, say they have a clean history once again. If someone's 40, we do an electrocardiogram. An electrocardiogram is the heart tracing. It's an electrical yeah. uh, test. It measures the electricity in the heart as it beats. From an electrocardiogram, we can tell if someone has had heart damage, like a heart attack. We can tell if they've had valve issues that have changed the shape of the heart and the thickened heart muscles, right. and we would anticipate problems. If, if there's any irregularities and they're, they're eat, and this is what I say to the patient, if their EKG is not in the chapter titled normal in the cardiology book, <laughs> like they go to the cardiologist going, and nine times out of 10, they're okay. And surgery proceeds, but it's not a risk worth, you know, I'm willing to take for someone. And lastly, um, this is more of a judgment call. I usually say around 50 years old, we would do a chest, a screening chest X-ray. Um, we're not screening for cancer. We're screening for things like fluid in their chest. We're looking at their cardiac silhouette and we're looking for pulmonary edema. Yeah. Um, the things that can impact their surgery. Yeah, being because able to- Because if their lung issue, they have lung issues or cardiac issues, then yeah. they could have problems with general anesthesia. Well, ventilation yeah, vent and then heart pump function. The other thing is lifestyle. So, you know, nobody wants to take, to, to, to do anesthesia on someone who's just been smoking cigarettes that day. So, you know, I, I do take care of people who do smoke. It's a fact of life. Um, this is another arbitrary thing, but I really try to get them to not smoke for at least a week or more before surgery because they're just frankly harder to ventilate for the, the airways are irritated. The anesthesiologist will have more trouble ventilating that person. So just for some of the, for me, I think especially I do facial surgery so we're, and people ask all the time, wait, wait, why do I need to, my doctor said it's okay right. to smoke, but the reason we don't want smokers or 
people who are smoking in the prior two weeks, really, or nicotine products. Is vasoconstriction. Yeah, because, yeah, we, we lift skin up, whether it's on the nose or the face, that skin is under pressure for its blood supply. Right. And so if nicotine products or tobacco is in the system, it's already tightening Comprom up. It's compromised. Yeah, compromised. So it impacts healing, can cause necrosis, can cause a lot of problems. Yeah. So we don't take that lightly, both for your health and for actual surgery outcome as well. Right. So the, those are lifestyle issues. I always ask people if they work out because people who are physically fit do better. Absolutely. And then it's very important to go through the medication list, which includes prescribed medicine, over-the-counter medicine, and herbs. Yeah. So I, I do a complete, you know, complete inventory there. And then we we pick off the medicines that can cause bleeding issues. For example, we need to figure out a compromise on blood thinner use. We get off vitamins that can thin the blood, such as vitamin D. We tell them to avoid non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, such as Aleve, um, which is naproxen or Advil and ibu Advil or ibuprofen. Mm -hmm. um, so those are, you know, those are aspirin, fundamentals. Aspirin, obviously, if people are taking it, yeah, yeah those are fundamentals. Um, fish oil yeah. too is a big one. So I really try to tell people, especially who aren't on medicine, please don't start medicine. Don't start an herbal regimen. Wait till after surgery, and then getting back to smoking. I try to encourage that person to stop smoking at that point because that's a nice gap. It's a great, perfect. They'll heal better. I can't tell you how many patients that have were smokers, and I told them exactly the same thing. Stop smoking two weeks before and two weeks after, and just stop because now you've done it for four weeks. Right, right. And this is your chance this is your to not only look beautiful, right. but be able to like feel well, amazing. You're, at that point, you're not chemically addicted, yeah. you're behaviorally yes. addicted, which is strong but you're a little, you're a step closer. So the surgery will go great, I right? I love that, yeah. The anesthesia, anesthesia doctor will get my note and look at everything and hopefully be happy that I was the one that did the pre-op. Yeah. Um, then you do a wonderful job and then, it, then, you know, then, it's, then it's time to heal. I recommend um, if anyone's worried, and I always ask, where are you sleeping that night? So that's a huge question because that, that becomes a logistical issue. So if someone's having um, a surgery that involves a lot of potential pain, potentially not being able to ambulate, really needing assistance, I always encourage them to go to a post-operative care center. Yeah, absolutely. And there are several high-quality places in our, you know, where we practice. Um, I don't know what it's like for the rest, you know, the rest of the nation. It's not as good, and that's why we gotta. I think maybe part of our today, part of our you know, discussion needs to be, what do they need to do if they're not, right. if they're going home? Right. And so, so who do they need to help them? What do they need to, you know, to do to avoid some of the problems that are, can be big problems right. because if it happens. People, even if they have the best intentions, mm -hmm. and we're not talking about people who are forcing their way into surgery when they shouldn't. Yeah. And those are, those are the people I can weed out immediately and yeah. the surgery never happens. Yeah. But let's say they have the best intention of doing well and following instructions, but they don't have a plan for after surgery, which does happen. I, you know, like I said, depending on how much kind of morbidity there is or, or pain and suffering, I say, you need to have someone with you. 
I say stay off social media and put your cell phone away that day because you're going to be using probably narcotic drugs and you're going to be coming out of anesthesia. So and please. You're going to say things. No mobile. Do things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no you're no be computer, like, no telephone. Yeah. Um, and then have someone who can respond to you, get you medicine, get you food if you're able to eat and get you hydration and make sure you're comfortable. Yeah. And um, then we're in the risk zone for blood clots, which usually are, come in the form of deep, deep venous thrombosis, or we call them DVTs. Um, and then you're at risk for infection. So as long as you have someone who can get you things, then you can you have a fighting chance to manage pain, avoid infection, and avoid blood clots. All you need to do the day after surgery is walk 150 feet which could seem horrible, you know, to someone who's had surgery. But we know from very good studies that that's, that's a benchmark for trying to get someone mobile enough to decrease their risk of deep venous thrombosis. Um, you're at a surgery center where they give you leg squeezers on your way out the door, which I think is fantastic. Yeah. It is the best. And, and I'm sure that really affects the post-operative yeah. deep venous thrombosis. Best thing I've ever seen. So, so surgery, as well as just staying, you know, sitting somewhere with your knees bent or just like not really moving can really, really increase the chance that little clots can occur in your thighs or calves or even deeper pelvic area. These clots, which we call DVTs, if they kind of leave break and off. get break off, can go and really impact your heart and can cause actually, I mean, that's, one, that's of the, what, yeah. one of the big things that can cause like serious issues. It's one of the few instant ways to die. Yeah. You know, as a doctor, I'm curious and I look, tried to look in a book, instant ways to die. What do I really need to oh worry about? Right. But a DVT is a way to die instantly. So, you know, and it's we, very simple to prevent. Yeah, and that's absolutely. what I think Dr. Schroeder is saying. It's very easy to prevent and, this. And this is outside of the realm of, of what we're talking about, but yeah. there are some surgeries that are higher risk, some lower risk, some surgeries you're getting blood thinner shots before surgery. Yeah. You know, so those, there are tons of protocols. Going to a qualified orthopedist, let's say, they know those protocols and it's old hat yeah. to them, but that's how you avoid that post-operative complication. Yeah. Um, the other thing is pain management. You need to have someone around who can help you with the pain meds. And my advice to people is if you don't sleep, you're not going to heal. So I, you know, I don't like giving medicine to anyone, but that's the place for a narcotic medicine. Yeah. That's the strongest pain reliever we have. If you are trying to gut it out and it's three in the morning because you don't want to take a narcotic, you're not going to do as well. Yeah. So, so that's this balance and, and pain is very individual. And you know, you know this. You have some patients who get through it on Tylenol, and then you have other patients yeah. who like are calling you and asking you for narcotics two weeks later. Very individual. Yeah, but um, one of the things in our literature in the plastic surgery world that's really big right now, especially over the last few years, we've actually now have been looking at the various surgeries, like rhinoplasty, nose surgery, facelifts, etc., and what the average number of pain medicines patients actually oh, that's require. So interesting. So we've seen that the surgeons are way over prescribing narcotics and that average numbers that people need are less than 10. I would most, I, I buy that. 
for most uh, of, of these procedures um, that are very limited in mm -hmm. area and region. And within, I try to really wean off my patients within three days and move them into extra strength Tylenol, which has been shown to great. be fantastic. And in yeah. fact, a lot of the orthopedic literature has shown that, you know, extra strength Tylenol uh, uh, is, is fantastic. One thing to just consider for extra strength Tylenol or Tylenol, there's only a limited amount you can take in a 24 hour period. So postoperatively, we always want to talk to our patients about if you're taking, let's say, Vicodin or yeah, Tylenol with codeine, there's that has Tylenol in it. So then you can't double up with Tylenol. There's only, on average, two to three grams of Tylenol that you could take within 24 hours without getting liver problems. So that's right. one of the discussions that's important to have. Now that that's a pro tip. Yeah. 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 That's advanced. Right? <laughs> that's that's the pro tip. Yeah. And then so. We talked about pain. We talked about having someone who can help you. And look, what are the reasons to call us, right? So, That's key. Yeah, why would you Why would you call me? Why would you call you? Wound issues are usually number one. And I, I mean, I think you're better at talking call about the that surgeon. than I am. Right. Yeah. You know, you have shortness of breath. Call me. Call you or call <laughs> 911. Yeah. Don't, this is the time after surgery is not the time to be shy right. with your doctor. And that's one of the things that great doctors have give you access to them or their colleagues who they work with so that you can have access to them. It's not the time to be shy. And have you ever been upset when a patient Never. called you after? Exactly. Never. Right? Never. Never. That's the time. Just call us. Yeah. Call us if there's anything. Yeah. Or if there's bleeding or you see something unusual, vision issues, if you've had eyelid surgery, right? vision issues call these are the emergencies that we want to hear because they're usually very easy solutions right if we know about it right away and then much more complicated if we we don't know about it right if away. it cooks yeah. yeah and then fever absolutely so, so we talked about pain we talked about mobility we talked about support we talked about calling the doctor so then the patient's inevitably going to ask um well what about food I think that's operation specific, yes. but let's talk about the GI tract in general, because if you are on narcotics, one of the worst things that can happen is constipation. And and you know, I had a patient who had a heart issue. He had a heart attack. He had the pain of a heart attack. He was admitted to the hospital, well taken care of, did well. Do you know what his worst complaint was? Constipation. constipation. That's the worst thing. Yes. Post surgically. So I put people on a bowel regimen. Um, and if they want to do it naturally, I tell them to eat, you know, five to 10 prunes a day or, or have a huge glass of prune juice. There's also osmotic, um, laxatives, for example, Miralax that are good. Um, and then Senna, which is a natural compound mm. that's both a stimulant that. and an osmotic, um, Colace is prescribed a lot. Colace makes the stool soft, but there's nothing to propel it. And there's no osmotic action or bulk mm. action with it. Yeah. So a bowel regimen is, is key for, you know, the days after yeah. surgery. Generally, the way I would tell patients, you got to look at two things. Is this surgery involving the oral gastrointestinal tract? Mm -hmm. If the surgery involves there, then you got to talk to your doctor because right. sometimes they don't, they want you to be on a clear liquid diet or some other thing, or maybe no food at all. Right. 
for a period of time. But like for me, if the surgery is outside, like I'm doing a facelift or a rhinoplasty, I have a very, very simple recommendation to my patients. I'm like, if you're not hungry, don't force it. Don't eat. Yeah. Just hydrate. <laughs> yeah. You need to hydrate because yeah. post-surgically, you don't want to get dehydrated. That's a big thing that happens. Dehydration leads to more pain, actually nausea, problems. Every, every, it makes everything worse. So hydrate. You could use Gatorade, you know, water, uh, Sprite, whatever of these things, ginger ale. Stay hydrated. And the way you know if you're hydrated, if you're peeing and you're peeing clear, whitish, you know, clear fluid, and right. it's not super ye yellow and dark. Right. When you're hungry, eat whatever you like. Yeah, exactly. You know, and that's really a simple, simple way that I kind of relay information. If you're not hungry, there's still some anesthetic or your body or the pain meds or s things like that. Uh, have have been kind of have changed the way that right. Um, oh, question to what do you think about emend? The uh, anti nausea that you could give. It's a medicine that you can give before surgery that has shown to reduce, oh, but it's like three hundred dollars a pill. You know, I actually that's one of my pre op questions. So, have you ever had anesthesia? Is one of the questions. And the two subtleties that I ask about are one, were you nauseous after surgery? Yeah. It, if you had surgery in the fifties and you were nauseous, oh yeah, God. it's yeah. a whole different yeah. ball game. Yeah. I'm not worried, but if you had surgery earlier this year, yeah, then, then I, I don't know about the pill you're talking yeah. about. I would assume that if I tell the anesthesia doctor, they would give them a shot of something before they wake yeah. up. So yeah. that's my assumption. The anti-nausea stuff has gotten a lot better. I okay. think the anesthesiologists are much more aware. They're not using drugs that cause nausea. Yeah. And also there's a really great drug called Zofran. Yeah. I that mean, I that's really my go -to. feel. Yeah. It's a both IV dosing that, yeah. you know, the anesthesiologist can give and your doctor can potentially pr uh, prescribe it for you if you have severe nausea post-op. But as soon as you get off the narcotics, and within 48 hours, your nausea will resolve. Absolutely. And that's kind of like yeah. my, my like, okay, that, get off. My, all of a sudden, all the medicines just drop off a yeah. cliff and you're on Tylenol. Yeah, and you yeah. feel, you, you'll feel a thousand times better. And crackers are good too when you're a little nauseous. Yeah, and then the other thing I ask about, the other pro tip is um, neck issues. Yeah. And, and I basically say, listen, you're under anesthesia, they move your head in a nice Stiff, way, yeah. but they have to position it. So please let us know if you have neck issues so I can warn the anesthesiologist so they don't hurt you. That's a huge pro tip because you know how many people have herniated discs, yeah. have had fusions, and they don't, again, the nicest patients are typically the ones who don't want to bother you. Right. And they feel like, oh, if I tell them about this, they're going to think I'm annoying. Right. So, but these are important things, especially in head and neck surgery, right? Because we're lifting and extending necks and so forth, and we're moving it back and forth. That's a great, and great thing. The other that thing needs to be talked about. The other thing that um, that I always talk to the patient about, and this is rewinding a little. I always say, I I always say, if you're nervous, that means you're normal. Yeah. <laughs> okay. A little so, bit of anxiety. So let's everybody, talk about yeah. being nervous because you know what? If you're not nervous, I'm scared now. 
because I'm scared of a patient who's not nervous about surgery. Me too. Something's no good no, there. No, for sure. Right? So then we talk about it. And then I, I actually, depending on what the response is of the patient, I talk about kind of my experience doing procedures on people and then my experience getting a procedure done. And when I was doing non-invasive lung surgeries, there were so many things that could go wrong. I, you know, when I consented people, I'd say, well, listen, we're going, you have a tumor and we're going to take it out. We're going to use a laser. And if we, if we pop your lung by accident, I, I'll, you'll be okay, but I'll have like about a less than a minute for, to introduce a tube a through your, through your chest wall and sew it in and you'll be okay. But you know, if you have bleeding, we're going to run you down to the operating room and I'm going to get a thoracic surgeon. So, so all of these Horrible things can happen. Anxiety provoking. So in my preparation to take care of this person when I'm going to do a, a surgery is one, make sure all the cupboards are unlocked in the OR so I can get the chest tube when I need it and not ask where the keys are. Mm. And two, all I want is the patient to show up because I'm ready to do a really good job and work super hard along with the entire staff. And I'm sure you're the same yeah. way right? You just want that patient to show up with a good pre-op and you're going to work your buns off to make sure everything's perfect. And I relay that to the patient. And honestly, I think that helps with anxiety. Huge. Right. Huge. I'm like, yeah. Dr. Azizadeh is ready to work super hard to make sure this is perfect. Yeah. No, our philosophy is the John Wooden philosophy. Failing to prepare is preparing to fail. Right. right. And so you have to be ready. And that's what I tell my patients. I'm like, look, what I'm gonna go over, and this comes to actually an important thing that I'll talk about maybe because we're talking pre-op 101, is what we call informed consent. Because it's scary when we go through, oh, well, man. this may happen, oh. that may happen, this, that. All of this stuff we discuss are really important for you to know. You, you need to know what the risks are. But there are major risks there are minor risks and there are very rare risks that are or, catastrophic. Yeah. So everyone needs to, your, your surgeon, whatever surgery you're going to have. And, um, hopefully this is a podcast that you can share with people who, you know, are going to be having surgery because we want you to not be like, Oh my God, I'm going to have a DVT after surgery. No, this is no, we're going to reduce the way that, that we want to reduce the risk. Have you have a lot of knowledge? about this is deep knowledge like you said the pros risk these are the deep knowledge that is not going to be shared with you in almost any other you know uh medium but can i interrupt you for yeah. one second the reason a patient <laughs> would interrupt go to me you anytime. no but this the mark of a good surgeon is not the guy who does it perfectly every time that's a that's an okay surgeon it's the guy who knows how to handle a, com a complication. Absolutely. So that's that's why you're going. That's why someone goes to you because you know it and I know it. There will be complications. Knowing how to handle them is what puts you ahead of other surgeons. Like when I was in my training, it wasn't I, I wasn't trying to have complications, but in a weird way, I was hoping I saw them. Yeah. Because I needed to, learn to know how it, to deal right. with that. And if I got out of my fellowship not having had that complication, I would be considered undertrained, at least personally consider myself undertrained. Yeah. And if someone says, and this is what I, can you guarantee, and this is a, that there will be no complication with this surgery? You can't. I'm like, if a doctor tells you that this is a 100% complication, 
you know, there's no complication with this. They're not being truthful. Right. Or they haven't done enough surgery. Right. It's one Absolutely. or the other. You're so there's right. no, there is nothing in between. Everyone who is even the expert will have complication, but complications and risks of surgery are minimized when you're with an expert who's prepared, who understands how to do it. It's just like if you're, you know, if you play basketball and you're a free throw shooter, free throw shooters, the best in the world is someone who's a 90% free throw shooter. They're still missing one out of 10, but they're making nine out of 10. And a great surgeon or a great doctor is not going to be a hundred percent. They may be 99%, maybe 99.5%, maybe 98%. Maybe there's a surgery that the risks are higher, like open heart surgery or some other and I you mean, know, major lung surgery. That's true informed yeah. consent. Yeah, and so, I, yeah I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, but no, no. no, I've been in situations where um, the, ri the mortality risk of the surgery was 50%. But the risk of not doing the surgery for mortality was a hundred. Yeah. So what do you do, right? You take that fifty percent risk, yeah. but yeah. you have to do it with your eyes open. And but most most surgeries are actually elective. I think most of the surgery, even when you're talking about cataract, which is what I would call from a body risk, right. like a bloodless surgery, very low risk. Right. Uh, but there's eye risks with that. Absolutely. Right. Colonoscopy, very commonly done. We just talked about it before. But there's a risk of perforating the colon, right? which is not a minor thing, right. potentially. Head and neck surgery, facial surgery. One of the things that I always tell people, and because I want to get your input, and this is why, you know, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of things in the news, you know, like, Patient had plastic surgery and this happened and that happened and so forth. But what I tell people, and I want to get your input, is a lot of the cardiovascular risks are really related to what happens with the blood supply and the fluids in the body. Right. And how they enter our cardiovascular system and leave the cardiovascular system. Right. So like when you're doing a major, if a doctor has recommended a major tummy tuck, breast reduction, like eight-part body lipo, you that is an that operation that is, I would say, not that you shouldn't have, but you should really make sure you've had a full clearance. For example, clearance. That's, that's the patient, depending on their age, even if they're healthy, they're going to the cardiologist. So there are, there are kind of two ways to think about this without getting overly technical. Yeah. But one is the pump function of the heart. How well is the heart going to pump blood? But the other is the volume shifts of fluid. And how is the heart going to be able to pump well yes. during volume shifts? So if you're taking a ton of mass off of someone in a massive abdominoplasty, the anesthesiologist has to be superior because they have to deal with volume shifts. And this takes me down one kind of side route which is one of the major complications I've ever experienced in a, in a patient I pre-opt was when someone was not honest with me and they didn't tell me they were taking a bunch of anti-aging injections um, that they were purchasing in Europe. And it turns out in retrospect, when we found out what they were, we realized why the electrolytes in, in the blood were, Off. were out of yeah. control. And when I say electrolytes, I mean the things um, like in sports drinks, 
but the electrolytes affect um, the you know they affect the way Electrical. the heart beats. So yeah. the the timing of the heart, and then even sometimes the contractility or how well it how well it beats. So that's a guy who ended up you know they had to cancel the surgery in the middle, and he ended up in the ICU. Um, and you know, and I'm waltzing in there at 1:30 in the morning with, with the surgeon checking on him for the fifth time that day. And, and that was because someone just wasn't forthcoming. And I don't know if he just thought it wasn't a big deal, but you know, this is my, you know, plea to, to get, to get all the information out of patients going in. And I think at the end of the day, hopefully this, this podcast is not here to scare you guys, but I think if you're in the hands of a great internist, great surgeon who they care about you, they're gonna do the right things. They're gonna do the right tests. They're gonna give you the right information right. to make sure you're maximized. And if you're maximized for surgery, you're the chances well. of complications are actually extremely low. Yeah, and, and I tell people, I say, we're gonna make sure you're okay. And if you're not okay, we're gonna make sure you're okay. And then you can get surgery. Yeah. It might not be on the day that you've scheduled, yeah. but the whole idea is to make sure you're okay yeah. going into it. And, and then can I move, can I move this to after surgery, of which course. is a super, yeah, yeah, yeah. super common question. When can I start exercising? Oh, beautiful. So what do you say? So I think that's a surgeon dependent right. process on what you've had done. Obviously, if you've had a knee replacement, your orthopedic L surgeon to is going to tell you. Your knee will tell you. Yeah. yeah. So for me, when I do, you know, with facial plastic surgery, pretty much I would say 99% of people fall into the category of the following. What I tell them is in a day or two, if they want to walk around, go get coffee, go to a dinner, restaurant, if they feel up to it. And in Beverly Hills, believe it or not, there are people walking around with cast on their nose and For things sure like that all are. the time. And they're blending in. I am, yeah. So that doesn't bother me. If they want to go, I don't want them to go on a 15 mile hike, but if they want to go for you know a few blocks, walk around, do this and that, I'm all for it. So that's really first week. The second week, if they want to walk, again, we talk about vigorous versus non-vigorous right. exercise. If they want to go for walks, you know, not running or jogging, but walks and go around and even a longer walk, maybe a mile or two, fine, no problem. We just don't want to spike in their blood pressure, number one. Number two is we still have sutures that are kind of healing in. We don't want those sutures to pop because if there's an excess amount of tension or right. so. At three weeks, pretty much I tell them, do whatever your body is telling you. Now you've come... You can't go back, you know, if again, you're, you're, you're a sports star and you've had ACL surgery, even when your surgery says you're clear, you still need to kind of get back into the groove. So don't go a hundred miles an hour, but let your body guide you. So three weeks, I would say if they want to do weightlifting, any the strenuous exercises, I'm okay with, mm -hmm. but that's kind of for my, my patient population, which are having elective surgery you know, usually facial surgery or, you know, uh, otherwise. Uh, but I think you have to check with your surgeon. That's a really, really important thing. Yeah. And then what about alcohol use? Okay. What do you tell people? So pretty much I would say the week before, 
I tell him to chill out on it. And a week after, again, I, if the, if they're you know, obviously, if they're alcoholics, it's a different process. That's not the way. But if <laughs> they're like, like, you know, socially drinking one or two glasses of wine, right. all of that stuff, I'm okay with. Um, you know, usually a week before, chill out. And, you know, right. a week I, after. I give the same advice. Yeah. I think if you ask three doctors, you'll get four opinions. Yeah, everyone's going to have a different yeah. guideline. For, you know, I think everyone has to really talk. To, these are actually important questions. One of the other things that comes up all the time is... Um, you know, we talked about the medicines that you got to take out. Right. But there are medicines that you should not come off of and you should even have well, the morning of, like if you're on a blood pressure medicine. If you're on seizure medicine. Yeah, these are things. Sugar you, yeah. medicine. You know, so that's, this is like next level. Yeah. But yeah, diabetics, we treat them differently. That's, you know, we don't need to go into that, but you will be, you know, we're going to have a discussion about how we're going to manage medicine. People who are alcoholics need to be, you know, the worst thing you can do is put someone into, into withdrawal 72 yeah. hours after they stop drinking. And then all of a sudden this, you know, the day of surgery is fine. Post-op day one is fine. Post-op day two, the house of cards falls down. And then if we don't know what to expect, we're not going to respond appropriately because there's medication. Obviously, you know this, but there's pills we can give people to stop them from withdrawing. Ideally, you know, I wouldn't want an alcoholic person taking the risk of elective surgery, but you know, there, there needs to be an There's honest conversation yeah. about stuff like that. And that's, I think uh, we can kind of end today's podcast on the most important thing is if you're having surgery, make sure you give as much information as you can to your doctor, because usually they will be able to solve most of the barriers and that are there to you a, having surgery and a good doctor will have all of the different kind of um algorithms that you need and won't judge yeah no that's not and if they, they judge you that's not the right doctor right you should move on right and if they're not actually asking the right questions you may want to seek another opinion and this is really really important a lot of what we've discussed, honestly, what I see is if you don't feel like you're getting the right preoperative evaluation, informed consent, discussions that we've outlined today, and there's been like a ton of it, then maybe either your surgeon or your doctor, you need to get a second opinion. Because that's where, again, problems arise when these things aren't thought of, it's not prepared, patients aren't given enough education about this and um, uh, again uh, make sure you're honest with your doctor and make sure the doctor you've picked is giving you the well, right is information. receiving is in yeah. receive mode <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah because sometimes it's like they have two minutes they're like oh okay boom 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 they're not even looking at you in the eyes well the other thing that <laughs> patients may or may not realize is there's something called a pre-op checklist yeah so as a doctor, I need to go beyond that in terms of rounding yeah. out who this patient is. And like you're saying, if it's two minutes, we need this test, this test, this test, this test, this test. Thank you. Bye. That's not enough. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. Well, Drew, thank you so much. Thank Today you. was awesome. I, I learned. I learned. A lot. And that's like we learned. the perfect podcast where we learn and we teach. So uh, thank you so much. I hope to have you again on thank the you. show. And if you guys have any questions or concerns, please leave messages 
for us and comment, give us suggestions for future topics. Please give us some uh, feedback and reviews. We always love that. And um, uh, stay safe, healthy, and uh, joyful. Thank and you. Thank you so much again for tuning in. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Drew.